the book of Daniel, we're calling this Life Hacks. Uh, Life Hacks is just a winsome, creative way to deal with life's challenges. And as a follower of Jesus, you find yourself swimming upstream, going against the grain of the culture. You're in a situation where Daniel was, in a setting where not everybody believed like him. In fact, he felt all alone because no one at times believed like him. So we're asking those questions. How do we navigate those waters? How do we hold our convictions without holding others in contempt that, they, that do not hold our convictions? So we're looking at spiritual life hacks. So I hope you've caught on to that. I know you have. I want to share a couple of life hack failures and there's quite a few because some of them are great and some of them are not great. Like if you ever lose a headlight, look at this uh, next one there. There's your life hack failure, how not to do it. Or look at this next one. You know it's illegal to drive while using your cell phone. Found this one and the person who posted it said, you know, if you do that, the police should just pull you over and give you a ticket for being weird. Uh, and look at this next one. It's not no necessarily a life hack, but it's uh, the title of that one was "Why Women Live Longer Than Men," <laughs> and I think they got a point. Look at this next one: a poor man smoke detector. If you're too young to under, understand Jiffy Pop, just ask your mom or grandma, and they'll. They say, Those are failures. Those are ways not to do it. And Daniel chapter five is really a story of a great failure. How not? To go about things. It tells about a king who tried to party or drink his way out of a problem. And it didn't work then. And we know it doesn't work now. Because he was not counting on God to show up. And to crash the party. And what we learn in this is the handwriting on the wall. You've heard that phrase probably all of your life. This is where it comes from. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the chapter. But first, let me just share a little bit of context before we read Daniel chapter 5. Because you need to know what's going on. Some commentaries will say that as much as 50 years have passed from Daniel 1 till chapter 5. So if, in Daniel 1, if, if Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, if they were all in their teenagers or maybe early 20 years, if 50 years has passed, then they're pushing 70 or maybe into their 70s. So they're up in age at this point. A new king is on the throne. A new king, several removed from chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, that we've been studying about, actually, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. In chapter 5, the king is called Nebuchadnezzar's son. But that word son is a little tricky in the Bible because when especially in talking about a king, it could mean his birth son, but it could also mean his successor. And so you'll see that word used both ways. What we do know is Nebuchadnezzar did have a son. And the Bible tells us his name was Amel Murdoch. And he did become king. But he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. Who then served as the king for two years. And then he died. And then his son took a throne until he was assassinated. And so in chapter 5, you've got Nabonidus who is technically the king. But you don't read about him in chapter 5. Because even though he's the king... He's not really the king. His son, but it's not really his son, is on the throne. Now, are you confused? Nebuchadnezzar was not really a good king, is what history tells us. He didn't, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was well-liked. In fact, he's uh, probably one of the best-known and well-loved, especially after he humbled himself and started following the Lord. He became a good king, a fair king, or so history tells us. But Nebuchadnezzar was not well-liked as a king. And that's a whole other detail. We won't go there. But he took a leave and basically left this other Belshazzar to handle things. 
Nebuchadnezzar rather be out like fighting battles or just being out on the frontier. And so this new guy was the king, but it wasn't really king. But Daniel calls in the king in chapter five. And so it's a little uh, confusing because he was acting like the king. So we're going to call him the king because that was his position. But also I want you to call your attention when we get into chapter five, when they offer Daniel a reward, they offer him third in position. And he did this because he was second in position because he wasn't technically the king. So do you know who's on first and who's on second now? Are we ready to go? Well, here's another good detail to know. In fact, this is key. The Persian army is camped out just outside the walls of Babylon. Or if not there, they're at least on their way. And the king knows it, but everybody knows it. Remember that statue in chapter 2 that we studied about? That talked about the head was of gold and then another kingdom would come? That's the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's the kingdom that's camped out just outside the walls, or at least on their way. Now, history tells us that what happened is just days earlier from Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonian army had fallen to the king of Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar had fled that battle. He was later captured. And Cyrus was on his way to take Babylon. And Belshazzar knows all of this. And Daniel, again, old man, forgotten by this new regime. Under Nebuchadnezzar, he become important to the king and under the leadership. But now in chapter 5, Belshazzar, and if you don't mind, I want to call him Bel. Because it's just a whole lot easier to say. But Baal knew this Persian army was coming, if not right there on their doorstep. And that was bad. That was really bad because they were taking down everybody. They were winning all their battles. They were that good. But Baal also had a reason to remain confident. Because he was in Babylon. And again, even secular history helps us to understand how impressive Babylon was. Imagine a city... They had walls 300 feet high. 300 feet high walls. 80 feet wide. 14 miles long on each side. So this was huge, wide, tall. So big that it, it, it enveloped farmland. So big, in fact, the Euphrates River came under the wall. So what Bell had to also be thinking is, we're good. You've got this incredible fortress, but not only that, you've got land, so you've got farmland to eat, you've got the river right there, you've got water, you've got food, you've got time, we'll just wait it out. We'll just stay right here until they get tired and they go away. So in a way, we can understand a little bit of his confidence. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. What happens here, though, to boost morale... Because everybody knows this Persian army is just right there. The days uh, are, are uh, the, the hours are limited as far as when they get there. So to kind of help boost morale, he throws a party, a wine party. We would say a keg party in our vernacular, but that's what's going on here. Daniel 5 verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Serve them good food. Serve him alcohol, help him to forget the obvious. And then Baal proposed the most foolish life hack perhaps in history. Part of this was like a drunk fest, but part of it was also a political maneuver. And he dared to make fun of the God of the Jews. 
He wanted to shore up confidence in his nobles about the superiority of the Babylonian gods. Remember, this is the culture that whoever won the battle, then their god was superior. Their god was strongest. Their god was best. And so he wanted to remind them of that. So he intentionally crossed the line by choosing the the god of the Jews. Look in Daniel 5 verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar and his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temples of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what I want you to see here, this is not, as we might say, some drunk fraternity prank. It's much more than that. This is a deliberate act of blasphemy. He chose to do this. No ruler before him had ever attempted to do something like this. But again, he wanted to remind them of how superior the Babylonian gods were. Better than the gods of the Jewish people. Better than the gods of the Persian people camped just outside the city. So he had to remind them of these past victories, of how superior their gods were. So they retrieved these items that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken years ago, decades ago. And the Bible tells us about this. This was the very ones that Ezra talks about, 5,400 pieces of gold and silver that were taken from the temple. But you get the idea just by reading here. The more they drank, the more they boasted. And it went on and on and on. They mocked all the gods, but especially the God of the Jews. And the party got out of hand because nobody was expecting what happened next. God shows up in a way with this human hand and starts writing on the wall. Look in verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. It was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. We understand that phrase, don't we? His knees knocked together, his legs gave way. I mean, this guy is scared. I was reading some commentaries about the original language. And actually, what the original language is saying is that when he saw this, he needed to go change his underpants. That's how scared he is. And that's what the text is telling us here. He doesn't know what's happening. But he knows something is happening. And it's not good. I want you to notice here, for the third time in five chapters, magicians, enchanters, astrologers are called to help. And every time they fail. Every time they're not able to come through. They're exposed as fraud. And you think, well, God's trying to tell us something. I think he is, and I share that with you because even today it's so easy to think, well, it's no big deal to read my horoscope or go see a psychic just for fun. But I want to warn you not to even dabble or look that way of anything that is not of God. Stay far, far away from that. See, it didn't work for these. But there was somebody in Babylon who knew now, again, Daniel had been forgotten, shelved by the current administration. Nobody was thinking about Daniel, but there was somebody who remembered. We don't know her name. Here it says in Daniel 5, she's called the queen. Maybe she's Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Or maybe she's the current king's wife. We don't know the queen's identity, but she knows Daniel's identity. And while she knew his Babylonian name, 
she also knew his Hebrew name, Daniel. Look at verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he is to, he's found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Now realize the setting here. Daniel is being summoned by a king that's not really the king, who's totally forgot about him, totally ignored him, just kind of pushed him in the back shelf for a while. So Daniel is summoned, and think for a moment, if you were Daniel, would you be inclined to help? If you were Daniel, this is the man who totally ignored you. Everything good you did for the kingdom has long since been forgotten. He doesn't know you, doesn't even know about you. Worse than that, he just made this huge spectacle mocking your holy God. And now he needs you. So you're being called on. Would you help? See, Daniel had many reasons to be bitter. I want us to see that. Or even uncooperative. But he continued to believe he was where he was, when he was, for God's purpose. So again, Daniel continued to serve God in Babylon. And Daniel served Babylon for God. So Daniel's brought before Belt and and told, hey, if you can interpret what this writing means, you got a lot of good coming. I'll clothe you in purple. You can have this gold chain placed around your neck. And again, here's where it says, place you third highest in the ruler. But Daniel's not going to be bought. But Daniel also knows who wants to be third in command to a kingdom that's about to go down. Who wants to be captain of a ship that's about to sink? Daniel knows this. He knew that the party room was about to become the courtroom. And his job, he's being summoned to read the verdict. Look at verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. These words mean, mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, that you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Again, this is where we get the phrase, handwriting on the wall. You wonder where it comes from? Well, this is the story. It's also the story where we get the phrase, your days are numbered. So there's a lot that we can learn even today. But again, go back to the setting. Daniel is called into this huge banquet hall, big enough to hold a thousand people or so, nobles, spouses. And his job is to say, King, your days are numbered. History tells us what happens. The Persians went several miles upstream from the river, built canals and diverted the Euphrates River so that the army walked underneath the wall and took the city almost without death. In fact, look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Has there ever been a greater fail in history? I mean, is this not phenomenal? See, for four chapters, we see God who is patiently pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. And they even go into some extreme measure to do that. Because Nebuchadnezzar is proud. He's bragging. 
He's full of himself, slow to believe in Yahweh as the true God, even though he sees these amazing things in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But he was given a chance after chance. So here's a question. Why then this king? Why Baal? Why wasn't he given more warning? Well, he was given more warning. This is not the first he knew of this. See, Baal didn't have an ignorance problem. It wasn't that he didn't know. Baal had an obedience problem. When he said for those gold goblets, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly which God he was messing with. Look back at Daniel 5, and we'll see what he did know. Beginning in verse 18. O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and the nations of the men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and set over them anyone he wishes. And then look at verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself Though you knew all this, instead you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in, in his hand your life and all your ways. Daniel tells him, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Though you knew all of this. Remember that letter from last week, chapter 4, that letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote, had sent throughout all the, everybody knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody knew, and if you didn't read the, the letter yourself, you heard about it. Everybody knew the story of what happened to Neb. And Bell knew the story. Well before the handwriting on the wall, this is, oh, by the way, while you were sleeping, he knew what had happened. It reminds me of Luke 16, when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus dying. Remember that story? The rich man ends up in torment, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man says to, to Abraham, send Lazarus to go and tell my brothers so they can be warned. And do you remember Jesus' reply? Your brothers have Moses and the prophets they have been told this is not an ignorance problem it's an obedience problem so here's the point god always warns before he judges the problem in babylon is not they haven't been warned they have been warned and here's the takeaway to fill in the blanks know this know that god holds us accountable for what we know god holds us accountable for what we know. You wondered about this, right? How is God going to make that right? How does God deal with this? God does not hold men responsible for light that they do not have. But we also know God has given all the light that a person needs. Let me share a verse from Romans chapter 1. Paul was dealing with this very concept, this very question. Romans 1, look at verse 18. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. This is what the Bible is telling us. Can you open your eyes and look around and deduce that we came from nothing, that there's not a creator? Not someone, something that we're going to be held accountable to. So Paul is warning that pleading ignorance on judgment day is not going to work. That's not a good plan. See, Babylon doesn't have an ignorance problem. It has an obedience problem. And here's where it gets hard. When you and I live year after year, sometimes decade after decade in Babylon, we can start to casually dismiss our lack of obedience. And look over that. Living in Babylon can seduce us to casually dismissing doing what God tells us to do. So let me share a couple of life hacks to kind of wake us up and make sure we don't go there. Number one, a word to the wise, Babylon will be judged. We learned that from Daniel chapter 5. Babylon will be judged. What nation or country or empire intimidates God no one nothing what do you know about Babylon go look it up you're going to find it was an amazing kingdom but what are you going to read is the word was an amazing kingdom and you're going to read about the ruins because it didn't last that's how history remembers Babylon look at Isaiah 40 verse 15 from the New Living Translation it just kind of renders the scope of this No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Did you know in the Bible, when you read the fall of Babylon, you read about it literally here in Daniel chapter 5, but you also read about it figuratively because it's used as a metaphor to talk about judgment. About the judgment of God. Babylon is used to represent all the human empires and their inability to, to stand before God. An example of this, Revelation chapter 18 talks about the fall of Babylon and the warning is get out. Get out before it's too late. Because God always judges Babylon. See, what we know in Scripture, Satan knows he's doomed. That's why the Bible talks about him being so angry. He knows he's doomed. But the flip side of that, Babylon doesn't know that it's doomed. Babylon thinks it will never be overtaken. That's what the king was thinking. And that's what even current Babylon thinks. But all empires have an expiration date. All of them. Whether that's a country or even a personal empire. So don't go switching jerseys because right now it looks like Babylon is winning. Don't get up, get caught up thinking like the Babylonians. But again, that's hard to do. E.V. Hill was a preacher who was much thought of uh, He was a black preacher who kind of crossed racial lines and other kinds of racial economic lines because he was so good at speaking and just telling the truth in a good way. Years ago, he was invited to speak at a white suburban church. And that's not where he was from. He was from a black inner city church. And so he was talking to these people about how different these two worlds were. 
And he made this statement. He goes, I know what's missing. Because I've been looking around. I know what's missing. You folks don't have graffiti anywhere. He said, I'd like to volunteer to provide some for you. I'll get a bucket of paint and walk through your neighborhood writing one word, one word on your million-dollar homes and your expensive cars. Temporary. That's what it is. It's all temporary. None of it's going to last. When you have plenty, you don't feel the need for God. When you've had so much for so long, you think it's supposed to be that way forever, but it's all temporary. When you never experience true hunger, how can we understand hungering for God? When we're always full, we think it's going to last forever. But don't interpret slow justice for no justice. Don't interpret slow justice for no justice. You know why God waits? It's a gracious display of his patience. God wants all men to repent. He wants all men to be saved. Everyone. And I don't know if you know this or if you often think about this, but even now there is an angel army just outside Babylon. And the same hand that's holding it at bay saying, not yet, not yet. It's the same hand that was writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5 saying it's not quite time because God is being patient with people. It's not time for judgment yet. But it's just a matter of time until it's all over. Remember Daniel chapter 2? The future doesn't belong to the statue but to the rock. So life hack number one, Babylon will be judged. Life hack number two, truth will be validated Truth will be validated. Babylon often treats truth as relative. The truth is a reality that's always in, in changing or in flux. But here's the truth. Poles do not decide the truth. Changing values do not define the truth. God's revelation stands regardless of who does or who does not accept it. It's God's truth. And it will be validated. William Willimon it's a theologian at Duke University, and he talks about early in his ministry, he was serving a church in rural Georgia. And he went to a funeral that was out in the country, and it was a funeral unlike any he'd been to before in so many ways. But what really stood out to him and what he wrote about was the preacher, the minister. Instead of talking about his life and, and, or anything that was positive and encouraging, it was like this hellfire and damnation sermon for all the people who were there. He wrote about it. It said, this is what the preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked over the casket and said, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He may have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that, but he's dead now. It's too late for him. It's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You can still decide. You're still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. William said he was just so just taken aback by all of it. He walked out and he told his wife, I'm so angry at that preacher. He said, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive to that poor family? I found it disgusting. And she agreed with him. I've never heard anything like it, she said. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. But worst of all, she said it was true. It was true. See, Babylon does not respect the holiness of God. But truth is going to be validated and Babylon's refusal to heed God's revelation results in misuse of things God calls holy. 
Let me give you a couple of examples. Life is holy. Life is of God. God is the author of life. Life in the womb. Life in a prison cell. The life of the person who doesn't think like you. Or vote like you. All life is sacred. Marriage is sacred. And God made this clear in the opening pages of the Bible. And Jesus repeated those same words as between a man and a woman for life. That only in marriage does sex belong. But Babylon is so given up on all of that. All of that. But be very careful what you do with marriage because it matters to God. And by the way, so is your body. As a Christian, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know that. So be careful. If you abuse your body by the way you eat, or your lifestyle choices, how you steward your sexuality, you're being trivial with what God says is sacred. God's name is holy. But in Babylon, Babylon is an ONG society. Thinks nothing about it. And we can be just like them, but God's name does not have an exclamation point. So next time you really want to say something in emotion, call on somebody else's name. But let God's name be holy. I could go on and on, but when you live in Babylon, just know Babylon thinks differently. It likes to party with sacred things. Making fun of God Himself. But the truth of God will endure. God's Word will not be shelved. Even if the whole world's ignoring it. And I've saved the last one, maybe a bit of encouragement. I hope it is. I mean for it to be. Number three, faithfulness will be recognized. Faithfulness will be recognized. Babylon picks the wrong heroes. But just remember that true honor is not determined by kings, but by God. And Babylon might forget you. It might ignore you. It might disagree with you. But don't switch jerseys. Don't go to the parties. Don't forfeit everlasting for the temporary. You keep going. You keep on keeping on. You keep running. Even when nobody else. You keep running the race. Let me tell you a story that inspired me. In 1983, Cliff Young was 61 years old. He was 61 years old when he entered the world, what's considered the world's most gruesome uh, marathon. It's the Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon, 543 miles in Australia. Go ahead and look at the, the picture here. Again, Cliff Young, 1983, he was 61 years old. He showed up for the race in his overalls and his work gumboots. Now, he didn't run in those. Everybody else was under 30, these ultra athletes. And then here comes Cliff, 61 years old, potato sheep, sheep farmer. Everybody thought it was a joke. But he'd grown up as a sheep farmer in Australia. Had no transportation of any kind, no tractor, no trucks. If he wanted to take care of the sheep, he did it on foot. He told the press that was asking him before the race. He was so familiar with pursuing the sheep, sometimes two or three days at a time. He thought, eh, I'll give it a shot. Well, they couldn't believe it. The way the race worked was this. You'd run for 18 hours, sleep for six, get up, run for 18, sleep for six, until you knock out all the miles. 543. Except, Cliff didn't do it that way. The first night, he only slept two hours. 
The second night, he only slept one hour. He was making incredible time. And people started realizing when he said he chased sheep for two or three days at a time, maybe he meant what he was saying. Five days and 14 hours later, he won the race. Almost two days faster than the previous record, 10 hours ahead of his first competitor. He won the race. They gave him $10,000. He didn't know there was a prize. He turned around and gave it to all the other entrants who didn't win. Do you know why he won? Do you know why he won? Because he just kept running. And he wouldn't stop, even in darkness. He kept running, even in darkness. And I think that's what Daniel did. Daniel kept going, even when the lights were turned out. Even when his position was taken away from him. Even when he was putting on the shelf and forgotten. When it seemed like God had forgotten Daniel kept going, doing the same thing. He kept living his name. Remember his name, Daniel? What that means? God is my judge. He knew who was God. And he knew God was in control. So when Babylon fell, Daniel is still standing. When Babylon fell, Daniel is still standing. Babylon will fall again. Judgment is coming. And we need to know that. And God has warned the whole world. He warned the whole world at Calvary on the cross. When we think of the cross, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is how much love was displayed there. And it, it, it is. It, what, for God so loved the world. But God also warns us on the cross that there is a penalty to be paid for our sin. And Jesus paid the penalty. God's wrath must judge sin. God does not ignore our transgressions. So either you allow Christ to do that for you, or you're going to have to do it yourself. And the handwriting on the wall is that all men, all men have been found wanting, lacking. The scales are against you. That is unless... You have the righteousness of Jesus on your scale. When you think of judgment, you think of scales. There's a Babylonian way of thinking that as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm, I get to go to heaven. That is not godly thinking. That is not biblical thinking. That is Babylonian thinking. What Scripture teaches you, the scales work when you have the righteousness of Jesus on your side. Then you have salvation. That's the only way the scales are going to work. One last verse, Romans 8, verse 1. Look at this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what's missing from that passage? Fear. There's no fear in there. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Babylon is going to fall. And we don't have to be afraid. But think about how much fear we have all sensed in the last couple of months. An amazing amount of fear. We do not have to live dreading the fall of Babylon because we've been invited to the ultimate banquet by Jesus. If we'll accept his invitation. 
Our song is to encourage you. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He came to make a way for you? That He died on the cross for your sins? So that you could have His righteousness? When God looks at you, He sees you as His creation, His child, pure and holy. He's given you your, His Holy Spirit living inside you. That's the invitation. Or if we can pray for you living in Babylon, that your thinking will be clear, that you won't switch jerseys, that whatever your struggle is, that you'll keep running even in the dark. Won't you come as we stand and sing?